our listeners. Welcome back to the Violence and Gender podcast. I'm Jennifer Kuhn, and I'm joined today by the journal's editor-in-chief, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole of the George Mason University. Deputy Editor Dr. Anna Satterfield of Texas A&M is unable to join us today, so I'm filling in for her. Our guest for this episode is Dr. T.K. Logan from the University of Kentucky, the author of an article published in the journal's December 2020 issue. The article is titled, Is Having a Gun for Safety Associated with Feeling Safer, Safety Planning, and More Assertive Responses to Conflict Among Women with Interpersonal Victimization Experiences? Thank you all for joining us today. Dr. O'Toole, I'll turn it over to you so we can begin. Thank you, Jennifer, and welcome, Dr. Logan. It's really an honor to have you here today, and we're very interested to talk to you about your research. Let me start out by asking you, how do you envision your article having practical implications downstream? And why do you think this particular research matters at this moment in time? Well, thank you so much for having me on to talk about this um, research. I would say my answer sort of has two components to it. So first is that U.S. has a lot of guns in households, and we know that there are risks associated with those guns. And there's regulations and gun control measures that are in place for high-risk individuals in certain situations, but even if those were implemented perfectly, and they are not consistent across states, either legal-wise and implementation-wise, we would still have a lot of guns in households, which creates risks. The other side, and so one part of this research is to ask the question, what are some other things we can do to mitigate risks of guns? And part of that is to better understand who owns guns, why do they own them, so we can target those messages that way. A second component of my research that kind of dovetails with this is I'm interested in how women in particular who've experienced ongoing victimization like partner abuse, which is a sustained victimization over a period of time and or stalking, what kinds of things they do to keep themselves safe. And just from my sort of anecdotal experience, some of them think about getting guns, some of them do get guns, and some of them are advised to get guns. So I really wanted to take a look and see, well, how does that work for them? And that's what this article did. And in fact, we found that the women gun owners and all of the women in this particular study had interpersonal victimization experiences. So the women gun owners in this study, what we found was that they didn't worry about their safety more than those who did not own guns. They were actually more comfortable in thinking about their personal safety. They did more general safety planning, not just with a gun. I mean, one of the other issues that I was wondering with this study was whether guns are the only safety strategy women have. So if a woman has a gun, does she safety plan more in general or is the gun the only answer? And what this study suggest is in fact they safety plan at a larger level. They were more confident in their ability to stop an attack. They had higher safety efficacy or perceived capability of handling a wide variety of threats from small to large. And they were more likely to say they would intervene in a situation if they saw someone being attacked. And 
gave more safety advice to friends and family as well. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Logan. I want to ask a question. I think a lot of those who are listening to this podcast are likely to be wondering, what exactly made you want to study women and gun ownership? So I alluded to this a little bit in my earlier answer, but I have studied stalking victimization going on 25 years now, which I think part of the reason is because stalking victims suffer so much and yet stalking is continued even today, denied, dismissed and minimized. And I got to a point around maybe 10 or 15 years ago and thought, how many more studies can I do that documents how terrible stalking is and how it continues to not be addressed by law enforcement and prosecutors? That's one strategy, but it's only a very small percent end up in the justice system like that, leaving stalking victims really to deal with us on their own. And I, at that point, I just kind of thought if I can't study ways that these stalking victims can be safer and understand better the journey of survival and how to cope with stalking, then I have to quit studying stalking. And it coincidentally sort of happened that I crossed paths with some people that were doing some women's empowerment and safety planning from a different perspective that I hadn't looked at before. In addition, because I've been studying stalking for so long, I will have sometimes victims who seek me out to talk to me about their stories, to see what other resources I might have. And I always say, if you're seeking out a researcher, you've got to be desperate. And it is in within crossing paths with those victims as well and their stories of survival and their sort of experiences of seeking help and feeling frustrated with nowhere to turn, particularly among those who want to get a gun. There's a lot of people that think that's a bad idea, but if a stalking victim calls a victim advocate and wants to safety plan and mentions a gun and we don't address that, again, I think the risks in those situations are so high that to think about this idea of safety planning with or without a gun with with that woman, but meeting her where she's at, which is what we say we want to do, but it's not always easy to figure out how to do that. Um, Dr. Logan, how do the findings of this study fit in with helping those with interpersonal victimization experiences? And I know you touched on it just a bit ago, but if you could go into it a little bit deeper and maybe highlight the one or two areas where you think based on this research and also based on your decades of experience, where these findings can be most helpful to those people that do experience interpersonal victimization. Basically, from what I've seen, there is limited research on best practices for safety planning, what's effective, what isn't effective, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. So this particular research, I think, has implications for how do we safety plan with women. That other thing I should mention is that almost two-thirds of women in this study who did not own guns believed that carrying a gun would help make them safer. What we don't know in that study is how many were thinking of getting a gun and very soon. 
But again, if we don't safety plan with these women, particularly those who are afraid or have this ongoing violence, then I think the risks of having a firearm are significantly increased. So the things that we can do with women that this study helped inform is to increase that sort of safety efficacy or the ability to address threats without the gun, to talk about gun risk mitigation strategies. So things like safe storage is the one we always think of, but there are lots of other ones I think that are important to talk about as well. Things like making sure the gun is always unloaded before you do anything with it, making sure never to put your finger on the trigger and unless you're ready to shoot and you've looked behind and you know where you're shooting and things like that. And then the third thing is what I call gun skills confidence. And that's just related to training and comfort with a gun and training in realistic self-defense kind of scenarios. Thank you very much. So Dr. Logan, after everything you've seen and all the literature you've synthesized, where do you think the research needs to focus next? I think there are two main areas that it needs to focus. And one is really a better understanding. And what we haven't talked about at all today is the other finding from my study and another earlier study published by Kelly Lynch in the journal that shows that the women most likely to own a gun are also the ones most likely to have been threatened with a gun or to have experienced gun violence victimization themselves. Really understanding what is that gun, that firearm threat, what do those look like? Where are they coming from? Obviously, abusive partners is one, but we don't know anything about sexual assault and firearm threats or very little. So that's one area. A second area is how to mitigate risk, how to message those. What are some gender differences between gun owners? Do we need to talk to women gun owners different than men? I suspect we do because in most things, there's very big differences when we talk about personal safety, defense, gun ownership reasons and things like that. And how to increase that gun skills, confidence and those risk mitigation strategies. And I think those are the the biggest things that I, I think would be important to address. Thank you, Dr. Logan, for joining us on this installment of the Violence and Gender podcast. We were very happy you were able to join us. And on behalf of Dr. Satterfield, who wasn't here today, Jennifer and I, uh, for co-hosting with me, we would also like to thank you for submitting a wonderful article for the journal. And we look forward to more of your research in the future. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And to everyone at home listening in, please be sure to check out the latest issue of Violence and Gender by visiting the journal online at www.liebertpub.com. While there, you can also learn more about how you can subscribe, peer review, publish, or use the journal in your classroom. We encourage you to submit your work to Violence and Gender and look forward to hearing from you. Also, be sure to listen to the last installment of the podcast featuring Dr. Caitlin Kirk Proventure, who discusses neuroanatomical differences between sex offenders. Thanks again, everyone. Mm -hmm.